Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am now starting on that most difficult book, the most difficult book in the New Testament, the book of Revelation, the Apocalypse of St. John the Apostle. I'm going to cover the first eight verses of Revelation chapter 1 in this audio. I'm going to call this section, Jesus is Coming Soon, with a capital S, capital O, capital O, capital N. Soon. Let me start with Revelation 1 through 2. Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. Capital S, capital O, capital O, N. The things which must soon take place. And he said and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. And of course, that John is John the Apostle, the brother of James, the son of Zebedee, who wrote the Gospel of John and the three epistles of John. Now, before we get started on this, let me give you a little bit of introduction. This book has always been considered notoriously difficult. John Calvin was driven mad by Revelation. He allegedly didn't write a commentary on Revelation because he couldn't understand it. He said, quote, the study of Revelation either finds a man mad or leaves him that way. <laughs> sort of sort of a pessimistic attitude toward understanding the book by this great theological doctor. How about Martin Luther? Martin Luther wanted to run the apocalypse out of the canon. Quote, I feel an aversion to it, and to me this is sufficient reason for rejecting it. Oh, yeah. Just like he wanted to get rid of James, too. Well... John Calvin and Martin Luther held to their starstice view of Revelation, which leads to nothing but confusion, and that's why I think they couldn't understand it, because I believe that's an erroneous uh, framework to interpret the book. I'm going to teach it from an orthodox preterist post-millennial perspective. In my humble opinion, all the other views that are out there lead to nothing but confusion. I know this might sound a little cocky, but I'm real serious about this. In my opinion, if you start with a seriously flawed premise, you're never going to understand the book. And I humbly suggest that these other frameworks that are used to interpret the book are seriously flawed. For example, historic premillennialism, dispensational premillennialism, futurist amillennialism, historicism, and the literary framework view. I'm not going to go into that. A lot of people like to teach Revelation this way. They say, we're going to look at the book and we're going to look at all the different views as we go through. Folks, you do that. First of all, it's going to take you 50 years to get through the book and you will be hopelessly and helplessly confused. The way to study the book of Revelation is to pick an interpretive framework, go through the book, and see if the data of the verses of the book fit your theoretical framework, or at least come close to fitting. That's what I finally decided to do, because I couldn't keep up with all this. And I found to my amazement that everything in the book of Revelation, or I say everything, most everything, fits perfectly within an Orthodox Preterist framework. So that's what I'm going to teach it from. It might sound kind of cocky when I say this is the way it is, this is the way it is, but I don't have time to say it in my opinion, in my opinion. This is my opinion. This is the Orthodox Preterist viewpoint. Uh, you can listen to this and see if you like it. If not, you can pick one of these other frameworks and try to, to, to solve the riddle of the book of Revelation. Lots of luck to you, because I don't think you're going to be able to do it. Now, as far as the date of the book, there are two major views on when John wrote Revelation. There's the early date view, which is around 65 A.D., about the middle of the decade before Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 A.D. That's the early date view. Then there's the late date view. That's roughly about 95 A.D., sometime in the reign of the Roman Emperor Domitian. Now, 
usually the date of a book doesn't have many implications, but in this case it has huge implications because if you take a late-date authorship view of the Gospel of Revelation, that destroys Orthodox Preterism because the Orthodox Preterist view of Revelation says that John wrote the book as a prophecy in prediction of the destruction of Jerusalem at 8070, which means he would have to have written it before 8070 in order to predict it. Unfortunately, today's majority view is that John wrote that the that the, the unfortunately the majority view today is the late date view that John wrote the book somewhere in the 90s AD. Now, I point out to you that in the early 19th century, all the way through the 19th century, the majority view was the early date view. Here's Philip Schaff writing in 1910, the famous church historian. The early date is now, that's 1910, accepted by perhaps the majority of scholars. I wish it was so today. A modern defense of the early date is Kenneth Gentry before Jerusalem fell. I have gone through that book carefully, and I'm absolutely convinced that there's no answer to what he says, that the late date view is based upon a bogus interpretation of one comment by Irenaeus, the Greek of which was ambiguous, and so... I think Gentry's right. The book was written before 8070. I'm going to assume that. If you don't believe that, well, you can study that in greater detail. Start with that book, Ken Gentry, Before Jerusalem Fell. Now, the hermeneutical principle I'm going to use is the typical grammatical historical interpretation of the scripture is that you interpret a book according to its literary genre. You don't interpret poetry literally. You don't interpret parables literally. And you don't interpret apocalyptic text literally. They were never meant to be interpreted that way. We will see this issue come up over and over again as we go through the book because there is one view of Revelation. The dispensational view, which has led to Tim LaHaye's hysterical Left Behind series and Hal Lindsey's equally hysterical late great Planet Earth series selling millions of books, scaring it, scaring the Gehenna out of everybody, talking about nuclear wars and black helicopters coming in the earth, dissolving and so forth. That comes from a literal hermeneutic. It leads to total confusion. Revelation is meant to be interpreted metaphorically, and I intend to do so. Also, it's meant to be interpreted scripturally based upon the Old Testament. There's lots and lots of allusions to the Old Testament in the book of Revelation, more than any other New Testament book, as a matter of fact. Revelation is probably John's version of the Olivet Discourse. Matthew, Mark, and Luke had Jesus speak, speaking the Olivet Discourse, discoursing upon the coming destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. John didn't need to repeat that, so he elaborated on it by giving his book of Revelation, which is also about the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, along with the destruction of the Roman Empire and the establishment of the New Covenant Kingdom of Christ. Now, the three major themes of Revelation, which point to AD 70. First theme, Old Jerusalem is destroyed, New Jerusalem is established. Now, Old Jerusalem, I refer to the rabbinic apostate kingdom, geopolitical kingdom that Israel was, the kingdom that murdered Jesus, and as Jesus pointed out, murdered the followers of Jesus. So the most part, most part of the first book of Revelation of the first part of the book of Revelation is mostly about the destruction of old Jerusalem. But then we get to the last part of Revelation and we see the new Jerusalem is established. So there's your theme. Old Jerusalem down, new Jerusalem up. And the new Jerusalem stands for the new covenant. The new covenant runs from the first to second advent and beyond to the eternal state, time without end. So that's the first theme of Revelation. Old Revelation, Jerusalem is destroyed, New Jerusalem is established. The second theme is they were two persecutors of the church. The Old Jerusalem, apostate Judaism, and to the Roman Empire. Both of them conspired together to murder Jesus, and we'll see in the symbolism as we go through 
how that fits perfectly. The third theme of Revelation, Revelation, which points to AD 70, is that believers were delivered so the gospel might be preached. Delivered from the Romans and the Jews, delivered from the persecuting Romans and Jews, so that the gospel of the kingdom can spread out all over the world. That's the good news. All right, with that brief background, let's begin. In verse 1, John says, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, revelation is something that is revealed. And I ask you, how many people do you know feel like the book of Revelation has been revealed to them? John Calvin said it drove him mad to look at it. And Martin Luther said, I don't believe it. Let's kick it out of the canon. It's a book of Revelation, folks. If you don't understand it, there's something wrong. It was a book that was meant to be understood, not speculated about. God gave it to Jesus to show to his servants. Show, that's word. It's not to hide it now, but to show it to believers. <clears throat> In verse 1, verse 1 says the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him, which God gave Jesus, to show to his bondservants. That means to reveal to his bondservants, his believers, his Christian followers. We're supposed to know what was revealed here. And if you don't know it, there is something wrong. And I would humbly submit to you, if you don't have an Orthodox Predator's view of revelation, that's what the something wrong is. You don't understand it. Now, what did God give Jesus to show to his bondservants, including John, the things which must soon take place? Now, this word soon is key in interpreting the book of Revelation. Soon. The word is entake, in swiftness, which we just translated soon. It comes from the Greek adjective takos, which just means uh, quickly, fast. So John is writing in the late 60s. The end of the world is not soon compared to the late 60s. Compared to the late 60s when John was writing, the end of the world is a long, long way off. So right then we ought to think, well, what is coming soon can't refer to the end of the world. It's amazing to me how many people just brush over that word soon and act like it's not there. John was not concerned about 2,000 years of world history, as the historicist view says. No, because he says he's talking about the things which are coming soon and the things of the Protestant Reformation were not soon. They were 1,500 years later. The book, if you say that the book is referring to those who are in the end times, at the end when Jesus is coming at the second coming, then that makes the book entirely irrelevant to everyone except for those relatively few Christians who are alive at the end of the world. But now if you make the book refer to events that are coming soon, which is the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, we can take applications from there and apply it at any time in history all the way from AD 70 all the way up to 2000, 21st century, all the way to the end of the world. Now, all Christians reading that word soon would know, would take it in its common usage. In fact, the word the takos, that Greek word, is used in several other passages in the New Testament. Let's look at them. Luke 18.8, I tell you that he will avenge them, the elect. He will avenge the elect speedily, soon. That's a parable of the unjust judge. Coming soon, Acts 12.7, And behold, the angel of the Lord came upon him, and a light shined in the prison. And he smote Peter on the side and raised him up, saying, Arise up quickly. And his chains fell up from his hands, fast, quickly, soon. Acts 22.18, And Paul saw him, Jesus. Paul saw Jesus saying unto me, Make haste and get thee quickly out of Jerusalem. Hightail it out, Paul, for they will not receive thy testimony concerning me. Acts 25.4, but Festus answered that Paul should be kept at Caesarea, that he himself should depart shortly thither. As King James, Festus is going to go to Caesarea quickly, going to meet Paul in Caesarea soon. Romans 16:20, the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. And I'm assuming Paul wrote Romans in 55 A.D., so that means that very soon Satan 
was going to be clobbered, and I suspect that's talking about AD 70 also. Now, the word soon is not only used in other places of the Scripture, it's especially used in the book of Revelation. Revelation, seven times as a matter of fact. In verse 1, the verse we just read, read is the first time. There's six others. I'm going to read them to you very quickly just to give you the impact of it. Revelation 1, 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. Revelation 2, 16, I will come to you soon. Revelation 3, 11, I am coming soon. He didn't say morning or night or noon like the song says, but he says, I am coming soon. What part of soon do we not understand? Revelation 22, 6, the Lord has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. Summarizing the book of Revelation. It's talking about the things that must soon take place. Revelation 22, 7, the next verse. I am coming soon. Revelation 22, 12, five verses later. I am coming soon. Revelation 22, 20, next to the last book in Revelation. I am coming soon. In fact, the first verse of the book and the next to the last verse of the book have soon. The things which must soon take place and I am coming soon. So what part of soon do we not understand? And I'm not finished. There's another word that's near, engus. It's used twice in the book of Revelation, Revelation 1, verse 3, which we'll get to in just a second. The time is near. 2,000 plus years from the time that John wrote is near? The end of the world is near to when John was writing? I don't think so. Revelation 22:10. then he said to me, don't seal up the words of the prophecy of this book because the time is near. N-E-A-R. Now, of course, those of futurist persuasions have got to explain this, and this is how they do it, and it is so weak. But this is what they say. They say, no, it just means, it means quickly. And so it's coming 2,000 plus years later at the end of time. And when Jesus comes, he's going, boom, he's going to come real quick. So he's going to wait, 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 and wait. And then, boom, he's going to come. To which I say, oh, I'm telling you that I'm coming to visit you soon. First of all, what person speaking the English language or the Greek language, here soon or takos, thinks that it's going to be 2,000 years before the action is done? I'm coming to you soon. 2,000 years from now? Really? Are you really going to take it that way? Of course not. But let's say you do take it that way. According to the futurists, this is what you would have to say. I'm coming to see you. Now, I'm not going to get there for another 2,000 years. But when I get there, I'm going to park my car. I'm going to shut the door. And then I'm going to sprint to your front door. Because I'm going to come quickly after 2,000 years. My friends, I submit to you that is ludicrous. Ludicrous. I remember teaching this at a theology. Not teaching it, but I was asked about it briefly off the top of my head. I started talking about this and... A dispensationist in the group said, well, there's a lot of Greek scholars that think that you can interpret takos that way. Wait 2,000 years, then something happens quickly. And I didn't say anything, but I'll say it now. I said, look, I've been in the academic world for about three decades or so, two or three decades, I can't remember. And I have seen so many stuffed up professors and scholars who teach nonsense. They cover it up with a bunch of words that obfuscate the real issue and blah, 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 blah. But just think it. Just common sense tells you the word soon means what it means. It doesn't mean 2,000 plus years from now. All right, continuing in verse 1, John says that this revelation that God gave to Jesus and Jesus gave through an angel, by the way, communicated through an angel to John. So it went from God the Father, God the Son, to Jesus' angel, then from the angel to John. It was sent and it was communicated. That's Holman Christian Study Bible translation. Now, the new, excuse me, that's the New American Standard Bible translation. I'm using the New American Standard all the way through this. The margin of the New American Standard Bible has, for that word communicated, signified. 
This was signified by Jesus. Signified means to show with signs. A revelation is that. It's a book of signs or symbols. It was never ever meant to be interpreted literally. And the symbols were never meant to be secret. They were not meant to be subject only to interpretation using some kind of secret code. They were symbols that were evident to those who were familiar with the symbolism of the Old Testament. And as I said earlier, Revelation quotes the Old Testament more than any other book. So that's how we're going to interpret this book. We're going to look at the symbols and see how the symbols would be interpreted by a Jewish guy who understood the Old Testament. Now, the communication went from God to Jesus to Jesus' angel to John. I don't know what the angel is in there between Jesus and John. Well, I wonder why Jesus, Jesus didn't just communicate it to John straight. I don't have the answer to that, but I did wonder about it. Revelation 1, verse 3. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. Blessed is the one who reads the book of the prophecy. How many people read the book of the Revelation and get totally stricken with fear. I just heard two weeks ago, a woman, a very successful woman, she was a country woman and not very learned in the Bible, but she was very entrepreneurial, made a lot of money, doing a lot of good stuff uh, financially and economically. And all of a sudden she said, I am sick to death. People telling me about the mark of the beast. And, and she was scared to death. She said, I'm frightened to death. And so my sister told her to watch my Orthodox Preterist videos to get rid of the fear. And that is one of the strongest arguments against dispensationalist Last Days Madness, Hal Lindsayism, Tim LaHayeism. That is one of the strongest arguments. Is what does it lead to? Does it lead to edification or does it lead to craven fear? Nuclear bombs going off. No, Jesus said, John said, or Jesus said to John, blessed is he who reads. That's the first of seven beatitudes in the book, incidentally. Seven blessings in the book of Revelation. I don't know whether that's a coincidence or not. Let me say something about literary form. There's all kinds of literary stuff in Revelation, and commentators go hog wild on it. You know, all these chiasms and, and stuff, and this is an example. See, there's seven blessings, and seven is the divine number, so therefore I don't know whether John meant to put seven blessings in there or not or whether the Holy Spirit did. I, I don't do that stuff. I never was good in English. I never liked all that English stuff. I just like to. I just want to know what John's talking about. I don't care about how he structured it so much. Now, notice that you're blessed once you hear the words of the prophecy, but not only do you hear the words, you've got to heed the things which are written in it. So the goal of the book is not prediction, but obedience. And of course, how do we all read it today? What's going to happen in the future is prediction. But no, the book is a book of obedience. Heed the things which are written in it. Why should the or Christians that John was writing to heed the words written in it? Because the time is near. What time? The time of the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. Or, as the futurists like to put in the future, the Great Tribulation and the Great Apostasy. The Great Tribulation and the Great Apostasy are all written about in Matthew 24 and the Olivet Discourse. They were all going to happen right before the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. Great Tribulation, Great Apostasy falling away. That is for another subject. You can listen to my audios on Matthew 24, or you can watch my videos on Orthodox Preterism and talk all about that. But I just say for right now that those... Things were coming, and the time of the destruction of Jerusalem is near. The things which are written in it were mostly judgment at the first of the book. The judgment was near. It's coming soon in goose. Revelation 1.4, John to the seven churches that are in Asia. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Now, you know, I just said something about the seven Beatitudes. Well, there's a lot of sevens in here. The seven churches and seven spirits, okay? So well, what's the, we need to know what seven is. Seven is the divine number. It's the number of perfect, divine completion, 
qualitative fullness, the essential nature of a thing, the divine nature of a thing, it's a good number. So John writes to seven churches, whether that's meant to be symbolic or whether it just happened to be seven churches he's writing to, I do not know. I really don't care. These seven churches were historical churches. Bruce Gore, who has done, he's an Orthodox Protestant, has done a lot of YouTube videos, great stuff. And he goes through all the seven churches in Revelation and talks about their historical situation. You know, for example, at Laodicea, this got some water coming in from one aqueduct that's hot. One's coming in from the other aqueduct that's cold. And when it got there, it was lukewarm and all mixed up. So that's a perfect symbol of a lukewarm church, that kind of stuff. So these churches were historical. Now, Schofield, the famous dispensationalist, said that John is giving a mystical description of seven church ages. John never says anything about a church ages. Now, you know, dispensationalists are always telling us that we should be symbolic. Excuse me, that we should be literal. Well, here, literal. This is not part of the apocalyptic vision. This is a part of who he's writing the letter to. Yeah, we take that literally. But they take it symbolically. Fanny backwards, if you know what I mean. And that's the way dispensationists generally interpret Revelation, backwards. Because when they get to the obviously symbolic places, they interpret them literally. John is not interested in future church ages, seven of them. He's interested in the things that must soon take place, verse 1. Now, notice that of the seven so-called seven church ages, according to the according to Schofield, the last church is the Laodicean church, and it's cold and lukewarm. And this is typically how dispensational pessimillennialists think that the last age of the church will be. Great apostasy, great tribulation, nobody's going to believe, all, all is grown cold, people will become lovers of self, disobedient to parents, blasphemers and so forth, and it's all going to go to hell, and you'll be lucky if you make it out. The only way, in fact, you will make it out was this, this mythological pre-trib rapture that they dreamed up. Well, folks, all that is dispensationalist hysteria and speculation because John was writing to seven historical churches. Now, John says, grace to you in peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. That's God the Father. And from the seven spirits who were before his throne. Now, seven spirits is a strange expression. Who is that referring to? Well, we've already said that seven is, refers to divinity, perfection divinity. The seven spirits means this is the divine spirit, the Holy Spirit. Now, to nail this down, in my mind at least, if you'll look at verse 4 and 5, you'll see the Trinity. Verse 4 We've got grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is, is to come. That's God the Father. And then from the seven spirits before him, his throne, that's the Holy Spirit. And then the Son is mentioned in verse 5, when we jump ahead, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. So in those two verses, you have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, if you take seven spirits to be the Holy Spirit, which I do. And notice that the Holy Spirit is before his throne. That makes sense. So we're going to take seven spirits as the Holy Spirit. We'll give you a quote from David Chilton, the theologian. He says, Holy Spirit, filling and empowering work in the church, is thus described by the number seven, symbolizing fullness and completeness. Now, the Holy Spirit is before the throne. In John's vision, the throne is mentioned 46 times in Revelation, more than any other book. The second place book is Matthew's, only mentioned five. So Revelation is about dominion and rule and sovereignty of Jesus Christ. We'll talk about that. Just a minute, we're going to quote Daniel 7 and talk about kingdom and dominion and rule and sovereignty of Jesus Christ. It's a big theme in the book of Revelation. Now we go to verse 5, and from Jesus Christ, John is writing to the seven churches, from him who was and is and is to be, that's God, and from the seven spirits before the throne, that's the Holy Spirit, and now from Jesus Christ, the Son of God 
Who is further described in the verse? The faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. Now, notice that Jesus is a faithful witness. Now, in English, a witness can either be somebody who sees something or somebody who tells about something he's seen. Well, here, some options as to what is meant by Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. It could be that Jesus faithfully testified about the things in heaven that he saw when he was with God the Father and he came to earth and testified about them. And I've got no problem with that view. Here's, here's a, I believe this is from David Chilton. He said that in the Old Testament, witnesses were assisted Witnesses assisted in execution of people by throwing stones. The witnesses testified. Then when the court found the defendant guilty, then the witnesses would grab stones and they would drop them on the defendant and kill him, execute him. And so the idea is Jesus is witnessed against these apostate Jews who murdered him and who've murdered the prophets from Abel to Zechariah. He's witnessed against them, against them. He's testified against them. And now he's going to execute them, eighty seventy. Jesus is also called the firstborn of the dead. Now, this has more to do with supremacy than with timing. We hear firstborn, we think the first from the dead, but we know he's not the firstborn from the dead because Lazarus was resurrected before Jesus was. Although Lazarus was more of a resuscitation because he was resurrected, resurrected and died again, Jesus was resurrected and never died again, so there's a little bit of a difference. Different type of resurrection. But I tend to think firstborn, not meaning the first person who resurrected to their glorified body, Although it could be that, but rather the firstborn in the sense that he has the right to inherit the kingdoms of this world, to inherit the whole world. Now, this is not primogenitor when it says firstborn. Primogenitor is the oldest son inherits, like in Victorian England. But in the Jewish Old Testament order, the firstborn got a double portion. For example, if there were three kids, the estate was divided into four parts. The oldest kid got two parts, the second kid got one part, and the fourth kid... The third kid got the fourth part, and the oldest son just got double. He didn't get it all, but he got double. And the idea means is you got the right to inherit everything before everybody else. Now, this idea of inheritance is in Psalm 2, verse 8. This is written to God's son, which is in verse 7, you see that, and then it means to David as a type of Christ. So the psalm is addressed to David as a type of Christ. Ask of me, ask of God. And I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. So you see, Jesus is prophesied of here that he's going to inherit the whole doggone world. And we'll see that that is a theme that's going to carry through through Revelation, especially when in just a minute we're going to get to Daniel 7:13, which he quotes. And we'll see that Jesus' kingdom lasts forever, and that's kind of a theme of the book of Revelation. The ruler of the kings of the earth. Now, kings of the earth could be translated ruler of the land, so he's the ruler of the rulers of the land, meaning the Jewish authorities who ruled the land, and that would fit better. That translation is perfectly legitimate, although it's not often used in the English translations, and it fits well with the idea that God is going, Jesus is going to conquer the people who killed him. But on the other hand, he's also going to inherit all the earth too, so we'll just we'll take rulers of kings of the earth rather than rulers of the land although I really think it could go either way. To him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood, there's the basic fundamental part of the gospel. This shows that sin, if you're not released from it, that means you're a slave to it. That's what sin does. It makes you a slave, and then it eventually kills you. Jesus took care of that for us, thank God. Revelation chapter 1, verse 6, And he has made us to be a kingdom, that's Jesus, has made us to be a kingdom, priest to his, Jesus is God and Father. 
To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Ah, rules of the kings of the earth. Dominion. That means a rule. And notice, he has made us to be a kingdom. We rule with Christ. Jesus has already been said to rule over the kings of the earth. And earth in verse 4, now in verse 6, he's made us to be a kingdom. Jesus is the king. He's the head. We're the body. And we rule the kingdom. That's pretty... That's a victorious eschatology, folks. Despite all the hell that the church was going through before 87 by these Jews that were persecuting them everywhere they went, John is saying, hang on, my friends. This synagogue of, these synagogues of Satan who are attacking you, nah, you're going to be a kingdom. Priest to this God and Father, priests to go between, ministering God to the people and the people to God. And that's what the church does. Do we not? We're all priests. We're also prophets and kings, too, for that matter. Just we're the head. Jesus is the body. Through him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Now let's look at Daniel 7.14. I said Daniel 7.13. I should have said Daniel 7.14, which says this, And there was given him dominion. This is Jesus. There was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. So there's dominion, there's kingdom. Now, how do we know what kingdom this is? This is the kingdom of Christ, the, of the church, if you will, the kingdom of God. It's going to, that all people, nations, and languages are going to be in, just like it's happened today. We've got Christians all over the world now. Now, this kingdom occurred in the book of Daniel, right after the power of the Roman Empire, which is the fourth beast in Daniel 7, was taken away. Now, I don't have time to go, go into a lot of detail of Daniel 7. But this is basic here. Daniel 7, 7. Let me read this. After this, while I was watching in the night visions, Daniel says, Suddenly a fourth beast appeared, frightening and dreadful and incredibly strong, with large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and it trampled with its feet whatever was left. It was different from all the beasts before it and had ten horns. As your ten horns, as your ten hills of, the, of Rome. The symbolism there should be clear. It's the fourth empire of the fourth empire. Then there was a fifth monarchy. The fifth kingdom, that's when the little small stone came, got bigger than a mountain, and fell on the feet of this nasty, ferocious fourth beast, destroyed the feet, destroyed the, the fourth beast, and then that kingdom spread all over the world. We can read that in Daniel. Well, that's exactly what John is, is referring to here, that Jesus is going to have a dominion forever and ever. And if you remember, there were two persecuting entities that are going to be taken care of in the book of Revelation. One is the apostate kingdom of the Jews, they're done away with an 87, and Rome's going to be taken care of too, because they helped the Jews kill Jesus. Revelation 1, 7, Behold, he is coming with the clouds. This is a quote from Daniel 7, 13. And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth, or all the tribes of the land, will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. He is coming with the clouds. Now, every time a futurist, indoctrinated Christian reads that verse, they think, oh, that's Jesus coming to earth in the clouds. That is not the way Jesus was moving in Daniel 7.13. We need to look at that. Daniel 7.13, I continued watching in the night visions, and suddenly one like a son of man was coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was escorted before him. Now, this is in a vision. This was not Jesus bodily going up. I guess in the vision he, looked, he had a body, but it was not him actually in a body. It was in Daniel's vision, and Jesus was not coming down from heaven. He was going up to heaven. He went up to the Ancient of Days. That was God. He was escorted before God. So the coming with the clouds was coming up to heaven. Why? To inherit a kingdom. Because the Ancient of Days gave him a kingdom. As we just read in Daniel 7. I think I said Daniel. Yeah, Daniel 7, 14. And there was, after he went up to the Ancient of Days, after he came up 
to the ancient of days that was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom shall not be destroyed. So you see, the coming up is to get a kingdom. It's not the bodily return of Jesus at the end of the age, which, by the way, I do believe in. I am not a heretical preterist by any means. He will come back, but that's not what he's talking about here, in my humble opinion. Now, in Daniel, you've got this fifth monarchy, the stone that destroys the fourth kingdom, and it spreads all over the world. It establishes the kingdom in the world. That's the kingdom of God. Well, when did the kingdom of God start? Luke 17, 21. No one will say, see here. Therefore, you see the kingdom of God is in your midst. You don't need to look. Oh, there. there. Oh, you don't need to look at the end of time to a premillennial kingdom like the pre-mills and the dispensationalists are always telling us to do. You don't need to do that because the kingdom of God is in your midst. It's already, even if it's not yet. In other words, it's already started and it's going to grow and it's going to change. It's going to get better and it's going to end up at the end of time in the final state. I'm not denying that. But the kingdom is here already, and that's the kingdom that Daniel was talking about in Daniel 7. And that's the kingdom that John is talking about here in Revelation 1.6. He has made us to be a kingdom. So we're kings, and we're priests to his God and the Father, kingdoms and priests. He doesn't mention prophet, but he mentions kingdoms and priests, kings and priests. So to him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. That means eternally, forever and ever. Amen. As he, the head, and us, the church, the body, rules forever. Revelation, the meek shall inherit the earth. Revelation 1-7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds. I just read that. And every eye will see him. Well, first of all, let's talk about clouds. He's coming with the clouds. Remember, he came up to Daniel, to the Ancient of Days and Daniel with the clouds. Clouds is always associated with judgment. In fact, it's one of the most familiar biblical image, image for judgment. Here's some examples I'm going to read you. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight examples of how clouds are associated with judgment so you can get a feel for it. Exodus 14:24. And it came to pass that in the morning watch the Lord looked unto the host of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and of the cloud and troubled the host of the Egyptians. So there was fire and there was cloud and there was trouble for the Egyptians. Exodus 19:9 verses 16 through 19. And the Lord said unto Moses, Lo, I come unto thee in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with thee and believe thee forever. And Moses told the words of the people unto the Lord. And it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud upon the mount, and the voice of the trumpet exceeding loud. So all the people that was in the camp trembled. That was the law, and the law was judgment, folks. So the law says that God is holy and you ain't. Now, if you think about it, you're outside and the summer storm comes up and those thick rolling billows, thunderclouds roll and the lightning starts flashing out there and it's scary. I've been there, unfortunately, and it's very frightening because bad things are about to happen when that lightning hits you. Judgment, clouds associated with judgment. These are not the little fluffy cotton ball type clouds we're talking about here. Psalm 18, 11 through 13. He made darkness his secret place. His pavilion round about him were dark waters and thick clouds of the skies. At the brightness that was before him, his thick clouds passed. Hailstones and coals of fire. There's your judgment. The Lord also thundered in the heavens and the highest gave his voice. Hailstones and coals of fire. So you see, clouds associated with judgment. So when Jesus comes on the clouds, he's coming to judge. Isaiah 19, 1. The burden of Egypt. Behold, the Lord rideth upon a swift cloud, and shall come into Egypt, and the idols of Egypt shall be moved at his presence, and the heart of Egypt shall melt in the midst of it. Why do the Egyptians' hearts melt? Is because Jesus is coming in judgment. Ezekiel 30, with the clouds, riding on a swift cloud. Ezekiel 32, 7 and 8, And when I shall put thee out, I will cover the heaven, and make the stars thereof dark. 
I will cover the sun with a cloud, and the moon shall not give her light. So there's your typical cloud covers the moon. That means judgment. Regime change. Nahum 1 verse 3, The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and will not at all acquit the wicked. The Lord hath his way in the whirlwind and in the storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. So whirlwind, storm, these are nasty judgment type clouds. Matthew 24, 30, Olivet Discourse. And then shall appear of the Son of Man who is in heaven, and then shall all the tribes of the land mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And there's your reference right there in Olivet Discourse. The same reference that John is making here, in my opinion, is that Jesus is coming in judgment because he's coming in clouds, and he's going to wipe out the apostate Jews who murdered him as a fitting execution of divine justice. Mark 14:62, and Jesus said, I am. This is when he was asked, was he the Son of God? And Jesus said, I am. And you shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. So in the Gospels, we see this coming is not talking about coming at the end of time. It's talking about coming in judgment because it says you will see. That's not at the end of the world. He's talking about you, Caiaphas, are going to see it. Actually, it's you people that were around Caiaphas. Caiaphas probably didn't last eighty seventy, but the people around Caiaphas did, and they were going to see judgment coming. So, why does this coming of Jesus not refer to the end of the world? Here in our verse, Revelation 1-7, Behold, he is coming with the clouds. Futurists always say that's the end of the world. No, because in Daniel, he wasn't coming to the earth at the end of the nation. He was coming at the end of the Roman Empire and the establishment of the church, and he was going up, not down. And in the Gospels, Jesus quoted the same verse again. He says, I'm coming, and you're going to see me coming. Now, I wasn't talking about the end of the world because nobody's going to live for 2,000 years and see Jesus coming with the clouds. So this is talking about AD 70 when Jesus is coming. And then it says, every eye will see him. Well, will every eye see Jesus and the coming of judgment on Jerusalem in AD 70? Well, first of all, you've got to understand that see can also be translated in addition to the idea of seeing something physically, it can also be translated as understand. For example, oh, I worked on that algebra problem. I worked and worked, and finally I see it. It means you understand it. The word can either mean see. It is used three. This 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 passage right here, see, and every eye will see him. It comes from Zechariah and is used in three places in the scripture. Not just here in verse 7, Revelation 1, but also in John 19 and also in Zechariah. So we're going to look at those passages, Zechariah 12:10. We're going to look at those. Sometimes it does mean see physically, but it doesn't have to. It can be understanding. So I'm just going to jump the gun here and say here it's referring to understanding. Every eye will see the coming of the judgment on Jerusalem, and they're going to understand what Jesus said when he was going to come wipe apostate Israel out for the sin, for the high crime of murdering the Messiah, the Son of God. You're going to see it. You're going to understand. You're going to understand him. Even those who pierced him, that's referring to the apostate Jews who crucified him. And all the tribes of the land will mourn over him. Now, my New American Standard has all the tribes of the earth will mourn. That makes it sound like it's all over the world. But no, remember that word gay there for earth can be translated land. It often is. As a matter of fact, you have to go by the context. And if you're a futurist, you're going to make it say earth. But if you're a preterist, you're going to make it say land. All the tribes of the land will mourn. Why? Because they pierced him and they... Or saying, oh, I wish we hadn't done that. We're sad now because the judgment's coming. I, I mean, that fits so much better. All the tribes of the earth born. Why? They didn't kill Jesus. I guess you could say they didn't believe in him, maybe. I, you could say that. But more specifically here, the Jews killed Jesus. And they go mourn when they see and understand that he, he's, ju he's judging Jerusalem just like he predicted in the Olivet Discourse. 
And all the tribes, and tribes, of course, sounds a lot like Jewish. The Jewish tribes, does it not? All the tribes of the land will mourn over him. Now, let's look at this passage from Zechariah 12, 10 through 12. We'll focus on the words see and mourn. This is Zechariah 12, 10 verses 12, 10 through 12. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication so that they will look on or see, they will see me whom they have pierced. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. So there's the seeing Jesus whom they've pierced, and then they go mourn for Jesus whom they've pierced. And they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. In that day there will be great mourning in Jerusalem like the mourning of Hadadrimon in the plain of Megiddo. That's referring to when, when uh, Josiah got himself killed by Necho of Egypt. We're not going to get into that. Verse 12, the land will mourn. We're not gonna, we'll, we'll take up Zechariah when we get to Zechariah. But right now I just want to point out this verse that John is quoting, he's talking about seeing Jesus and mourning over him. And he says, the land will mourn. Now, in general, Zechariah's prophecies are fulfilled in the first century. For example, Zechariah 9, 9, Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Well, we know what that is. That's Palm Sunday, first century, 30 A.D. Zechariah 11:13. Throw it to the potter. The Lord said to me, "This magnificent price I was valued by them. So I took the thirty pieces of silver and threw it into the house of the Lord to the potter." That, of course, is the famous story of Jesus betraying of Judas betraying Jesus with thirty pieces of silver. 80:30. Not the end of the world. Zechariah 13:7. Sword awake against my shepherd, against the man who is my associate. This is the declaration of the Lord of Armies. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. That was fulfilled in when Jesus was uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane, and all of the disciples hightailed it out of there when Jesus got arrested, as we see in Matthew twenty-six thirty-one. Then Jesus said to them, Tonight all of you will fall away because of me, for it is written. Jesus is quoting now Zechariah thirteen seven. I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. So Zechariah is pointing toward the first advent. So if all those verses point toward the first advent, well, doesn't it make sense that Zechariah 12, verse 10, the inhabitants of David will look on me, will see me whom they have pierced. Doesn't it make sense that that's talking about the first coming of Jesus? It's not talking about the end of the world. Every eye will see him and even those who pierced him. Now, I told you how Zechariah in general referred to the first century, not the end of the world. Well, there's a quotation from the Gospel of John, the same guy that wrote this book of Revelation, who takes this particular verse from Zechariah 12.10 and puts it right at 80.30. So let's look at that. John 19.36. For these things happen so that the scripture will be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. All right, that's John quoting another scripture. And then he says again, another scripture. That's our scripture here, Zechariah 12.10. They shall look on or see him whom they have pierced. So John takes that very prophecy in Zechariah 12.10, fulfills it at the cross, at the crucifixion, and here in the book of Revelation, I would submit to you, he's doing the same thing, except he's not talking about every eye seeing Jesus at the crucifixion, they're going to see him at the judgment on Jerusalem. All the tribes of the land will mourn over him. Now, the difference in the mourning, there is a difference in this mourning. In Zechariah, the mourning was one of repentance. In John 19.36 and Revelation 1.7, the mourning is mourning of terror. Although ultimately Zechariah is fulfilled because many will mourn in repentance when they're terrified and they come to Jesus. So it's not exactly like there's a complete dichotomy between the two, but there's a difference of emphasis. But at any rate, 
we have Zechariah talking about the tribes of the land mourning Jesus' crucifixion, and then, and then we have them, the tribes of the land, mourning the judgment that comes upon Israel in AD 70. And now let's go to verse 8. We'll finish up this audio. Revelation 1.8. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and was and who is to come, the Almighty. So God is the Alpha and the Omega. I think Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega in another verse. I don't have it in front of me. I'm going from memory. But at any rate, God is the Alpha and the Omega. What does that mean? Well, the Alpha is the first letter of the Greek alphabet. The Omega is the last letter of the Greek alphabet. So he's the first and the last. That means there ain't nothing before him and nothing after him. He's always been. He's eternal. And that's a comforting word to hear from people who are undergoing persecution as the readers of the book of Revolution, Revelation were undergoing. They were being persecuted, but John is trying to buck them up. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we finished the first eight verses of chapter one of Revelation. In our next audio, we will take up Revelation chapter one, verses nine through 20 to the end of the chapter. And I'm going to call that section, The Son of Man Appears. Hope to see you for that audio and I hope you enjoyed this one.